0: Hello my name is David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. Today we're talking about Russia with Bridget Kendall who was the BBC's correspondent in Moscow and she's one of the few people who's actually sat down with Vladimir Putin and looked him in the eye. What did she see looking back? Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, Europe's leading magazine of books and ideas. We've already had some LRB writers on this podcast and we'll have some more soon. There's a reading list of pieces to accompany the podcast at lrb.co.uk forward slash talking, along with a special subscription offer for Talking Politics listeners. 12 issues of fearless, expansive, elegant writing for just £12. We went to talk to Bridget Kendall at the end of last week. So this was just after Theresa May had announced that she was expelling the 23 Russian diplomats before we got Putin's response. And a little later, I'm going to catch up with Helen so that we can bring the story a bit more up to date and talk a little bit about Corbyn's response as well. I went with Erin Rapport to talk to Bridget Kendall in her office, which is in the Masters Lodge in Peterhouse, the oldest college in Cambridge. It's a beautiful office. It's kind of on the street. So you might hear some traffic noise to start with, though that does fade away. And then about halfway through a sinister group of seagulls arrived. Helen tells me that that was a sign that the weather was about to get worse, and that's how it works in Brockwell Park. I can't remember if it happened in Cambridge or not. If you can stick it out past the traffic, past the seagulls, you'll hear a really interesting conversation. I began by asking Bridget Kendall whether what's going on at the moment, particularly the tit-for-tat expulsions, reminded her at all of what used to happen when she was covering Moscow back in the Cold War.
1: Does it feel soviet Does it feel like the standoff we used to get during the Cold War? These things are becoming increasingly more like that. I mean, I think to begin with, I was rather reticent to say that. used to argue it's not like it, it's not binary for a start. That's certainly true. We're in a world of multiple threats, North Korea, ISIS and so on. Russia's only one of them, and we do collaborate at the same time. But what we've seen unfold in the last week or so, although, of course, it's incremental we you know, we look back to Litvinenko, we look back to Georgia 2008, Ukraine 2014, sort of milestones in the worsening of relations between Russia and the West. We have reached a point of, of sort of lack of communication over this or lack of any point of common understanding, which reminds me of the Cold War. So on the one hand, you have Theresa May standing up in the House of Commons saying it's so likely it's the Russian state, we're going to kick out all these diplomats and who knows what else we'll do. And on the other hand, the Russians are saying, it's not us, in fact, it's more likely to be you, which is sort of outrageous and so ridiculous. That, for me, is very... Neo-Soviet.
0: And, but the way the Russians are communicating it doesn't have echoes of the Soviet era where it would have been some grey man on TV reading in a monotone voice. It's got that kind of dynamic internet equality now. Yeah. It's almost mocking. Well this it's, is
1: interesting isn't it? I was thinking about this that um, Theresa May was saying and one of the things that has coloured our view about this whole is the way they've responded and I think it's coloured mine too. I was thinking this this morning that the Russians could have said we're really sorry about this Case it's atrocious. This sort of thing shouldn't happen. Of course, we'll collaborate, and then you know found a way to sort of you know it made it harder to, for it to be possible to point the finger at them. But they haven't done that. But I have wondered at the same time about the style of modern Russia. This postmodern, everything's a joke.
0: Yeah, the the, Everything ir- is the irony. Everything is possible.
1: Nothing is true, as Peter Pomeranz have put it. That yeah, well the irony. So have they sort of slightly misjudged? The tone because this is the way they treat everything now, because it's a way of saying we have no ideology, the world doesn't have an ideology. We're in a vacant space where anyone can say anything and it could all be possible and tomorrow it could all be different. And therefore we see it as mocking, but they don't quite understand that it sounds quite so mocking. If you watch RT a lot, I don't know if you do you probably don't. I don't but I'm it afraid. is slightly weird the way it sort of is constantly evading coming down on one side or another and there's a policy reason behind this of course but it's also a style that's been developed now and that's also out of tune with what we do so that's in this country certainly the way we react to this sort of sort of event
0: so that style makes kind of tit for tat standoffs like this one a bit strange because we don't know what the Russians will do, and we don't know... It's not like, as in the Cold War, there was a sort of choreography to this. Well, we People know, are feeling their way in this one, aren't they?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. It isn't just a rerun of what we... Those of us who are old enough to remember the way it used to be. I mean, you know, let's not forget, this isn't the first set of expulsions. There were the four diplomats kicked out over Lipinyanko, so that was a sort of tit-for-tat moment. This is much bigger. But on the other hand, if you think about Putin recently, he has very unexpectedly and demonstrably said, I'm not going to do tit for dat, or we'll take our time. He did that at the end of the Obama administration, you remember, when they took over those two compounds and they, they took measures. And he said, well, actually, we're not going to take measures and we're inviting American diplomats' children to our Christmas party. Well, we now know that was perhaps in the hope that they expected the Trump regime to be rather different. But it still does mean that we can't entirely be sure that the way the Russians will behave will be according to the script that was laid down two or three decades ago. And after all, you know, it is very true that there isn't this binary opposition. And there are probably other motivations at play which have all to do with sending messages to your own population in Russia that we live in a normal country, you can read what you like, you can travel, you can go on the internet. So, you know, the West is wrong when it tries to say that we are not a free society. Which brings us on to the very intriguing question of what would be the motivation of why this happened?
0: There's a brazenness to what's going on here at the moment. There is a sort of in-plain view. So we've got irony on TV. We've got the newsreader saying, don't go and live in Britain. The death rate for emigres is very high. And, and there is a sort of showiness to some of it feels like, to some of this. So, what is the motivation for the in-plain sight quality yeah. of this?
1: To begin with, I thought maybe this is about some, some rogue element in the security services, either settling schools or trying to box Putin in, which is what the earlier murder of the opposition politician Boris Nemtsov looked like, in the glare of the headlights, if you like, in front of St Basil's Cathedral, a kind of staged murder to say the Kremlin couldn't stop this. So I wondered if this was part of that. But What we're seeing now, as you say, this brazenness, makes me think, if you're looking for a logical explanation, it is about messaging. And so there are two sets of messaging. One is to the internal population to say, we are strong and bad things happen in other places and we're impervious to this and no one can stop us. So, you know, Britain's accused us. Should you, the Russian population, believe it? Probably not. But whatever they try to do to us, we're so strong nowadays, they're puny they're just a little bit breaking off Europe, they don't matter. The idea would be that it makes some Russians, maybe quite a lot of Russians, feel good about themselves the way walking into Crimea did. And the timing, therefore, that it came just before a Russian presidential election when they might have been worried about turnout, maybe they thought this, as the Russians would put it, aventura, little adventure, would help somehow encourage people with the idea that they... They have a president who's strong, Russia's back, no one can touch it. That's one thing. But I think the other message, people have talked about this a lot, but it makes sense, would be to the Russian emigre community. And it's to say, if Russia wants to say to its population, we don't do censorship, you can read on the internet, you can travel, you can still go on holidays wherever... That is a problem because then you have emigres who come back and forth and Russian journalistic outfits in places like Latvia beaming messages in which undermine the government, which criticise it, which are the opposition and they're outside the country so you can't crack down on them with your foreign agents law and your national security laws. They're beyond your legal jurisdiction. So how else do you get to them? Well, messages of intimidation by saying you're not safe anywhere. If you think you can go to London and sit there comfortably like Khodorkovsky is and use the media to send messages back into Russia to try and undermine it and organise regime change, we can come and get you wherever you are. So the ultimate message is the rest of the world is not safe, but Russia is safe. And you have to buy into this deal with the Russian government that you're a loyal citizen... You stay in Russia, you don't go and sit in the rest of the world and sit on the sidelines and carp, because we'll come and find you. Which is chilling. Chilling, absolutely chilling. And, you know, I think the difficulty for the British government, if this is true, of course, you know, we are still in the realms of speculation to some extent, is that if they crack down hard on Russians in this country, they will force people to make a choice, And, of course, Mr Putin would love them to come home and bring their millions back to Russia. This is about fortress Russia. And unless Britain's very careful, they will find that people... You know, a lot of Russians, I'm quite convinced, who even some who are quite close to the Kremlin, are not privately Putin fans at all. They'd love to see all this end and Russia become a normal country again and join the Western world, and so they wouldn't have to play these difficult games of living in London but somehow trying to keep in with the Kremlin, if they feel that they're being forced into a corner, they may decide for the sake of their families that they have to make the choice Putin wants them to make. So I think that makes it quite difficult for the British to crack down too hard and too widely on the Russian community. And they shouldn't really, because a lot of these people are in a really difficult position. They shouldn't be penalised unduly just because of something that it looks as though their government has done.
0: Because one other thing that presumably is going on here there's that wider strategic question about what does Putin want and what does he think is in russia's interest and the brazenness has had this effect i mean if it, if it was something that happened in a secretive and ambiguous way, you'd expect the politics to be to sort of match that, and people to be puzzled and confused. But what you have now is that for some people it's so obvious that he did it i mean this is a chemical attack on British soil by a foreign power, and yet for some others, so we've seen it in British politics, Corbyn saying, Let's can we wait. be sure? Seamus yeah. Milne on his behalf saying it even more strongly. The Italians, the people who did well in the election, the leader of the league saying, I'm not sure. It's actually more divisive because it's so brazen, because for the people for whom it's obvious what's going on, they cannot understand. You see it in British politics at the moment, the baying well, in the House yeah. of the Commons.
2: I just want to say, on, on the point about you know what does... Putin get out of this? And what's the strategic objective? It's interesting to think about these actions along a spectrum from you can have totally covert actions, where you purposely try to cover up any trace that you were involved, which is clearly not what is going on here. You can have totally overt actions, right? You can have 1956 in Hungary, where there's absolutely no attempt towards plausible deniability. And then you have this kind of hybrid zone, which is clearly meant to be coercive, but is also meant to introduce a certain amount of strategic ambiguity, which is not something that's unusual in international relations. right? Implausible Probably, deniability. Right? Implausible deniability, right? Israel will not be the first one to introduce nuclear weapons to the Middle East. Things, things along these lines that everybody knows are, are not true. But why is Putin doing this? It's because he doesn't really seek that, I don't think, uh, much escalation. With the West. So I contrast what's happened in London recently with what happened in Syria when 200 Russian mercenaries were killed attacking US and Syrian rebel group positions. And there, there is actually, to use the C word that's been going around a lot, collusion between the Russians and the Americans to say, oh, well, right, these were private actors. There was a lot of kind of muddying the waters about exactly how many people were killed. And both James Mattis, the U.S. Secretary of Defense, and the Russian government seemed pretty eager to sweep this under the rug, right? Because neither side really saw it to be in their interest to have dramatic escalation. So this is a coercive type action, but it is aimed, I think, primarily at Russian emigres, right? It's not necessarily aimed at coercing the West. What it is more meant to do, I think, in the West is to, again, sow dissensus and confusion, right?
1: Well, you know, that's going to depend on how this plays out, Mm -hmm. isn't it? Because essentially the people who are being a little bit cautious are saying, hang on here, let's go through the motions of sending this substance to The Hague, let's get it tested, let's have the experts in The Hague, the chemical weapons experts, say, yes, this is this substance that comes from this one lab in Russia, and now Russia respond to us. So this will all play out, and at that point... One presumes you will see the reaction harden among Western allies, I would have thought. Unless this ambiguity that can remain. I mean, one, one line that the Russians are, are coming up with is well, a lot of this stuff was manufactured in the Soviet Union, it was very chaotic, there wasn't proper security at least facilities. They might have been sent to former Soviet republics, which are now independent, places like Georgia and Ukraine. Who's to say that this wasn't from Ukraine? And actually, these are people acting against Russia who planted it in order to make it look as though it was Russia. So one can assume that that's the line that the Kremlin will probably go down. But it may not look so convincing when the chemical weapons experts start to talk about the degree to which these facilities are secure and the unlikelihood that it would have been some some element that was able to get hold of this stuff. I mean, if you think about Litvinenko, I mean, there the was really quite quickly an assumption this was polonium. It did come from a Russian source, and and people stopped talking about the idea that it might be some plant or some rogue. And I would expect that that's what will happen here. So therefore, I think the international response will probably harden.
0: In a way, it's quite an interesting test of whether we have moved into a slightly different world in which nothing is ever agreed anymore, in the sense that. the the last two to three years what we've seen is that it's almost impossible to find the point at which everyone says okay enough of the speculation we've got some facts and if we're waiting for experts to confirm it after all part of the line that Seamus Milne has been taking is you can't trust the people whose job it is to say where this comes from.
1: Yeah but if it's from The Hague that might be different don't you think? As opposed to MI5 and MI6 Yeah I mean his grief is with the whole um, British security establishment weapons of mass destruction 2003 thing. Yeah so,
0: but it's also ideological. It's, it's not about yeah. wanting reliable evidence. It's about a wider battle that he's been fighting for a while. That, or am I being unfair? That may be true. Not.
1: I mean, you know, he, maybe he and others like him in the Labour Party are leaving this option open because they think that we shouldn't be escalating bad relations with Russia, and so you've got to bend over backwards to give them the benefit of the doubt. But what I'm saying is there may become a point once you get the chemical weapons experts in the Hagen world, when actually, you know, it's, it's not really going to be possible to do that.
2: The one thing I also wanted to say about the propensity for the Western allies to actually solidify and take a harder line is, paradoxically, I think Russian weakness, in, in a way, might hinder that from happening. Um, Lawrence Friedman had an article yesterday that I thought was very useful, in which he pointed out, right, just before uh, the Soviet Union dissolved, people still largely thought of it as a fairly strong monolithic force, in international politics. We might be making the same mistake thinking about Russia today, or at least in the popular press. But at the same time, Russia has an economy that's about What 8% the size of the United States. It's no longer a quasi-empire as it was during the Cold War. Producing kind of corny made videos about nuclear warheads being dropped on Florida is not something a very secure state does. And again, kind of paradoxically, this has put the West in a tougher position in terms of creating unity, because I don't think there is really necessarily the same sense of threat deep down that you had during the Cold War. I'm not
1: sure I agree Mm. with that, because I I think that The new threats, the reason that this isn't the sort of binary, hard-edged Cold War conflict is because it's about new sorts of threats. So we've got weapons of mass destruction, if that's what you want to call them, or, you know, assassinations, terrorist attacks across borders. There's the whole cybersphere, which we've already seen, in a way, in the information war, but then, you know, there's the other side of it that the Americans have probably been doing too with Stuxnet and who knows what they've been doing to try and disable North Korean missiles. And that's the arena, it seems to me, we're moving into. And, and you know, who knows?
0: Plus, there's gas as well. There I mean, there's gas. the energy connection. Well, that
1: is, that is a weapon which Putin has tried to use before. He did in the mid-noughties, didn't he, through Ukraine and, and others. And actually, what's happened is it, it's encouraged Europe to diversify. And maybe it hasn't, it hasn't worked out so well for him. But I think you're absolutely right that Russia's a very weak economy. I mean, if you look at the World Economic Forum in January people talk about China and other countries, they're not talking about Russia. It's sort of absent from those sorts of fora which deal with international economics. It doesn't rate. But where it rates is on security. And that is why, in recent years, in order to reassure his own population that Russia is strong, that these are the buttons that Putin has pushed, from taking territory in Crimea, the war there, and then, of course, the Syria show. That's all about that. And in a way, this is too. This is also about security. And no doubt... In some ways, meddling in elections, which is about cyber, it's also a way for Russians to feel we can make ourselves felt about the world. And I and I think that, that reassures Russians of a certain ilk, but I think it also worries the rest of the world. And I was quite interested at the beginning, just after this incident happened, people were saying, oh, well, maybe we'll need to have stationed more NATO troops in the Baltics. And that's not what's happened, actually. They're talking about chemical weapons facilities, and things that they say they can't tell us, which is probably cyber. And absolutely rightly, this is not about tanks in the Baltics. It's not about moving across borders with physical weapons. It's about this global world we have, digital world, borderless world, where things move in another way. And I don't think that the West will think that Russia's not a threat in that sphere. I think that if there is clear evidence of this, they'll think, where does it go next? I mean, it's very interesting, isn't it? This has not happened on the American mainland.
2: No, it hasn't, it hasn't happened on American mainland, well, except for, of course, the, the 2016 Ex- election Except for the elections.
1: But in terms yeah. of assassinations, there mm-hmm. are a lot of Russians in the United States. They're not being taken out, as far as I know. You don't hear about it anyway. Except for, of course, this um, lesson, the former press, secretary in Washington, that mysterious case where he's found right. in his hotel room. I was trying and, to think of and, and an example. And was that. it, and it you know, this sort of discussion about, was this natural causes? Did he fall over? Or was he actually bludgeoned to death just before he was due to testify to the FBI? Well, you know, maybe people will want to reopen that one. So, you know, maybe there is a little bit. But if the, if you're sitting in the United States, Trump or no Trump, thinking, is this about us too? Mm-hmm. Well, there's the elections. But you have to say, people walking into small cathedral towns in Britain doing this sort of stuff, where does it end?
0: So you have met Mr. Putin. Yep. You've sat down and looked him in the eye
2: a couple of times. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Saw his soul. No, that was <laughs> something else. He's,
0: uh, it's a, it's a, the line that he, uh, he said recently, which made me feel a bit strange, was when he said, um, there's no point to a world without Russia in it, so we're not frightened of nuclear war because there is no value to a Russia-less world so we might as well all go down together. When he says stuff like that is he...
1: I don't think he's he's a madman.
0: No, and that's not mad but it's quite close to being hard to deal with.
1: He very early on said we need to Uh, revamp our nuclear. I mean, let's face it, in the 90s, Russian defence was in a terrible state. I mean, it was prior to that. Remember Matthias Rus, this young German boy who flew into Red Square because it was border day and all the border guards were drunk and he just flew straight through them. So, you know, this isn't just the collapse of the Soviet Union, it's pre-collapse of the Soviet Union. But Putin came in and saw the country needing defence and he very early on said, given the size of our country and what we need to do, we need to focus on nuclear. So I think that 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 was a strategic decision, which was was quite rational, and taken from a position of perceived vulnerability. And now, of course, with his videos and so on, it's a, it's, it's a way to make Russians feel good about that country, even though quite a lot of their tests don't work and quite often crash. You have this lovely video that they can look to and feel we're back again. We because they go on all the time russian officials about the fact that we really are the other superpower because if you count nuclear weapons that's where we count so you know maybe people don't talk about them at davos but when you come to nuclear arms control russia's the big beast next to the united states so that to me it makes sense that he'd carry on talking about nuclear because that's the one arena you know security in general but particularly nuclear where no one can match the russians so i think that's what that's about
0: what do you think, So he's got six years as president, or, and maybe more, mean he's got another term, what does success look like for Vladimir Putin over that period? And how much of it is about well relative standing to Europe and the West?
1: Yeah, let's come back to the Russian vulnerabilities that you talked about, Aaron, because if you go beyond the major cities to smaller cities and rural areas, it's very poor. And roads are not kept up, and people are living hand to mouth. And the poverty levels have gone up a bit. I mean, they're still much lower than they were in the early 2000s when Putin came in. He, he did, on the back of high oil prices, really improve people's lives. But you no, know, a lot of analysts say, and I think they're right, that the recent adventures we've seen in recent years are against the background of an uncertain Russian economy. It's doing a bit better now. Um, oil prices gone up a bit. They've weathered the storm of 2014 when the ruble lost so much value, but there's an underlying question about whether the support for him, how long-standing or how resilient is it? And if you think about the final decade of the Soviet Union, we probably thought in the early 80s that the Soviet Union. The Communist Party had it sorted. It had created a system that self-perpetuated. It controlled the country. It was probably going to be there for the rest of my lifetime and my children's lifetime. And it all collapsed in six years because something came in. It was Gorbachev who lifted the lid and people began to be given a license to think things they'd never felt allowed to think before. So I think that must worry Mr. Putin. And the difficulty for him is he has no succession plan. He's resisted that. If you like, the only succession plan he has is Dmitry Medvedev. This castling, as they call it, you know, when the king and the rook swap places and then swap again.
2: And they've done that once before. They've done
1: it before. Could they do it again? There used to be, um, there was a Russian joke in 2008 when Medvedev came in as president and Putin made himself prime minister. Two old men are sitting on a bench. It's 2024. They're drinking beer. One says to the other, Vladimir Vladimirovich, I can't remember which of us is president and which (laughs) is prime minister. And the other one says, Dima, it doesn't matter. I'm in charge. Get me another beer. And in 2008, we used to laugh at that because it's a sort of ridiculous story. Actually, it's not funny anymore. We're
0: now nearer 2024 than we are to.
1: But nonetheless, he can't live forever. And I thought it was very interesting when he announced his candidacy. There was quite a lot of discussion emerging in, in Russian newspapers and on, on websites starting to talk about what would life after Putin be like and when you when you start having that the people around him begin to position themselves and think well is this sustainable, How to, where do I need to go I mean there are one or two oligarchs people close to him who've left the ship, are there others positioning themselves, for who might take over, what do you need to do and then Putin doesn't look quite so strong and the next six years are the six years in which people will be constantly saying, well, are these his last six years? So I think his main preoccupation will be how not to be a lame duck.
0: And he can't do the Xi Jinping option, which is... Well, he could. Solve that problem by getting it up front, accepted he's there well, forever. Well, he could,
1: of course, but the last time he didn't want to do that because he thought it would be seen as a pretext and undermine him. But his good friend in China has just done it. But his and good friend
0: doesn't have to occasionally pretend to have an election?
1: No, but, you know, you could have a narrative, couldn't you, that says the world is an increasingly dangerous place. Russia is being treated as a scapegoat. We need to protect ourselves. I mean, this has been going on slowly. Th- these things are incremental, aren't they? You could see that narrative played out. they are enemies of the state everywhere. They're trying to undermine us were surrounded by hostile forces, well, maybe not totally surrounded if China's meant to be an ally, and Turkey too, for that matter. But I would have thought that you could, you could see that as a trajectory that's quite possible, and then, and then you'd have a constitutional change that goes through Parliament, and he could be there. But the problem is, it's still a weakened state, isn't it? Because in the end, he will go, and then what? You know, he can't be immortal.
0: <laughs> and, and he doesn't have the organisation that underpins Xi's rule in China. I mean, it is, it is built on irony and chaos and personal power politics. It and is not the Communist Party and the massive
1: And the deal bureaucratic structure. that I am the man that people will vote for. They won't vote for you, Sechin, or you, Lavrov. I'm the man they'll vote for. And therefore, I rule the pack. But if at any point there's a chink in the armour, if there are opinion polls, or low turnouts in elections, or anything which suggests the emperor might actually not have any clothes... Not just when
2: he
0: takes them off himself.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Then
1: the people around him might say the time has come to think about an alternative. That's his problem. And of course it's interesting because it's actually a sort of way in which Russia is democratic, in which... The view of the population matters, which is why what goes on television, control of NGOs, particularly opinion pollsters, really matters to them, and why this sort of messaging, these stories, these narratives, are so important in order to keep people thinking the right way.
0: It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves,
2: feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com.
0: So stuff's been happening in Washington too, and we're going to come on to that as well, because a lot's moving at the same time. But The the other question I want to ask about the unity of the West and the possibility that this is opening up some big cracks is the point I mentioned earlier that, for want of a better word, the populist parties in Europe, one of their distinguishing and slightly puzzling characteristics is their tolerance for Putin. It was a feature of Le Pen. It was a feature of Mélenchon. I mean, that's the thing it cuts across left and right. Five Star in Italy and the League both seem to say that they're not convinced that Russia is the enemy here. Uh, but I wanted to check this with Erin. As far as I understand, that's not true in the United States, right? So the Bernie Sanders wing of the Democratic Party. So again, with Corbyn here. but There is uh, an outlier
1: in Europe, which is Poland, but let's leave that mm. aside. Mm. Well, so
0: Polish populism is its own kind of um, beast. But France, Italy, to a certain extent, Britain. I don't know about AFD in Germany. Are they... None of us I'm know. I'm not sure. But sort of, you know, say the Democrats nominated a left populist for president. Would we expect that part of that narrative would also be this, Ah, Putin's not such a bad guy?
2: I would be surprised by I that would also in be the surprised United States. I to check. And I haven't seen that coming out of really any significant portion of the Democratic Party. And on the right, amongst the Republicans, Trump seems increasingly isolated, like most things about Russia when it comes to having to criticize them, right? He was kind of dragged kicking and screaming in that direction. Um, He's not known for somebody who controls his impulses very well. So if he had been really initially upset by this or felt free to talk about it, he he would have done so on Twitter. But no, the Republican Party seems to be pretty well lining up with the UK. Nikki Haley gave a speech at the United Nations the other day, which basically asserted that the United States has very few doubts, if any, Anything, uh, that Russia was behind the uh, Scripple attack.
0: And Congress as well. We talked about this before. It's one of the big divisions between Trump and both parties in Congress. They are much, much harder and on even,
2: Russia. And even Trump backers. So we might talk about Mike Pompeo in a little bit, who will. looks like uh, the Air designate to Tillerson as Secretary of State. And he's... Pretty hawkish on all issues, around North Korea, but also Russia as well. And before, uh, he is, he's a Trump supporter, but he has expressed concern previously about Russia's role in the 2016 election. Not surprising given that he is, is currently the director of central intelligence in the United States. Whereas Trump would have people reinforcing his, his instincts on, on certain matters, I think Pompeo would reinforce his instincts on Iran and to a certain extent North Korea, maybe. With Russia, that would not be the case. Um, he'd be facing significant. Push back.
0: So do you think the US-Russia relationship is going to start to get more binary again? I mean, Trump was obviously the confusing element here in all sorts of different ways. Yeah. But with Pompeo, with the hardening of opinion in the Republican Party, apart from anything else, is there a danger of real escalation around what's happening in Britain, do you think, that the US gets drawn in? in well, they a already
1: pretty- have the Magnitsky list, right? You know, Congress passed mm-hmm. that. In a way, they're ahead of Britain on this one. It's interesting, isn't it, that if the Republicans in Congress are pushing through an idea, they've done their investigation into potential Trump campaign collusion over meddling in the election and concluded there isn't any, in a way it frees them to be a bit more hard line on Russia. I wonder if there's a, you know, the Trump White House is its own place,
0: that's one way of putting it.
1: So there's the rest of the establishment. is what Nikki Haley says. There's what might happen at state or, you know, the defence establishment. But if you take the list that the Russians were really worried about that came out in January of Russians who might be targeted, it was the Forbes rich list because the White House wanted it that way. Um, it included lots of Russian oligarchs you look at and you think... They're not very close to Putin. Why are they on that? It's because they're on the four rich list. So something happened in the White House that diluted that possible way of putting pressure on Russia. So what conclusions is Moscow drawing? I think they think they must think of the White House as its own thing, Trump as someone separate, and then there's... This is a very old Russian narrative. There's the deep state. There's the military-industrial complex, which has always seen Russia as the enemy, which has always required Russia to be the scapegoat in the enemy in order to justify their own expenditure. They'll definitely be saying that about the MOD here in Britain. You know, follow the money. Who benefits from this poisoning of a Russian double agent? The British Ministry of Defence. Who might have their fingers in it? I've already written the script for them. Mm. But so I kind of think that... You can't tell what might happen with Trump. But if you think about the rest of the American establishment, I think we can, we've already s- seen the trajectory, which is towards a hardening of relations. With and
0: Trump. one of the ironies here, again, relative to when you were correspondent in Moscow and BBC's diplomatic editor, and you looking at a world that's sort of gone in some respects, is the deep mystery is the White House. In a way, when I was a kid, the Kremlin was the mysterious place. Mm-hmm. And, and the job of people was to try and work out what on earth was going on inside that. And we've just been talking about Putin, and we can make sense of a lot of it. Mm. Whereas the White House—I don't know what the equivalent of a Kremlinologist would be—but anyone who can make sense of what's going on in there, has a Trumpographer, a Trumpographer has got a big. Mm. The Trumpographers—it's a strange world where the White House is harder to fathom than the Kremlin.
1: Yeah, and I was thinking back to your analysis of populist parties being across the board pro Putin and maybe...
0: Or soft on Putin anyway.
1: Yeah, soft on Putin. And maybe the other way of looking at it is it's not so much that they're soft on Putin, but that they're disenchanted with their own elites and their own centres of power. And, you know, Trump's partly a reason for that, but the White House is also part of that. So the reason that it's across the board that these parties are not following the lead of their elites is because
0: they are it's a way to say
1: we're against the elites, we don't trust you. I mean, I hear that anecdotally and people say, you know, this is all stereotyping Russia, you know, by people who've always done it. Which is music to the ears of Moscow, of course, because that's exactly the message they want people to hear.
2: At least one way I should qualify my previous statement, because we're bringing this up about there kind of being solidity within the Republican Party that seems to be going contra Trump on Russia, is that might be true of elected officials and appointed officials like Nikki Haley. But amongst the Republican base, people who are voting Republican, I'm not up on the latest public opinion polls. But that very well might not be true, right? A lot of Republicans might, because of negative partisanship, basically fearing the opposing party more than you have your own positive political platform, might see the Democrats as a bigger threat than Russians. And we'd seen prior polls that showed a dramatic flip in terms of Republican voters' attitudes towards Russia as Trump became kind of the clear front runner in the Republican campaign. I mean, we're a long way from 2012 when Mitt Romney said Russia is uh, the United States' biggest geopolitical foe on the globe. So Russians might take some solace in that, saying, well, even if Trump doesn't seem to have support of Republican Party elites in Washington, D.C., people don't take their cues from Mike Pompeo or Nikki Haley, right? They take them from the president.
0: And insofar as the Steve Bannon worldview did resonate with Republican voters, the, the connection was that the central fight is against Islamism, and terrorism, and in that, Putin's on our side.
1: Well, that's what you know. Some people would say, you know, let's not forget the big picture. You know, who, who's the real enemy here? And this has been a a strain that's been there in Russian foreign policy or or Russian messages to the outside world for a long time. You know that the West is elitist and post-colonial, and we stand up for the poor guys, the people who are not who don't have their voices heard and you know these crazy people who've taken political correctness to the nth degree we stand up for an old-fashioned conservatism and family values and these things resonate.
0: So into, into this mix at some point the Donald and the Kim are presumably are going to meet somewhere and that has the potential to move a lot of things on again Aaron, in the, the recent goings-on in Washington, Tillerson's gone. And w- when Tillerson was fired, I thought, oh, wow, he, like, Trump must be on his third or fourth Secretary of State. But actually, no, Tillerson was the one, right? So Tillerson lasted quite a long interference. And Tillerson in Trump was kind while. of
2: like maybe 0.25 Secretaries of State. He was oh, – okay. uh, already people are saying he will maybe go down in history as the worst Secretary of State the United States has ever had.
0: Okay, but he was a survivor in Trump terms, in, in the longevity of his administration. No runs Priebus, he. But, Yeah. <laughs> Or Scaramucci. Yes. So okay. he now has someone that we're meant to believe he is more comfortable with as his Secretary of State, whether that's personally or ideologically. And we've got this summit coming up. And it's a pretty high-stakes event, and presumably we can agree. How do you think that is going to change all of these dynamics? Mm. I mean, Pompeo, what's he, what's he there for?
2: First off, I, would, I wouldn't bet my house, not that I'm a property owner, but I wouldn't... Because this know, is Cambridge. Yeah, I wouldn't bet a lot of money on the summit actually taking place. I mean, it was pretty much a spur of the moment decision. Now, the fact that it's become public that Trump had committed himself to this makes it harder to back out. But already you saw a little bit of hedging and saying, well, we don't want to meet precisely without any preconditions whatsoever. Yeah,
1: remember that state visit to Britain,
2: right? Mm-hmm. Precisely. So, you know, the interesting thing right now for the United States is we don't currently have a Secretary of State, and we also don't have an ambassador to Seoul. Victor Cha was in line to be nominated, but then he said that doing a bloody nose military strike against North Korea would be stupid, to paraphrase more or less what he said, and that put the end to his candidacy for an ambassadorship. The difference that Pompeo makes is is hard to say now because... If you'd asked me a couple of weeks ago, I said, well, Pompeo is a much bigger hawk on North Korea than Tillerson is, right? Perhaps even a bigger hawk. Than, than McMaster is, right? McMaster, who's the national security advisor, has this not entirely crazy fear, right? That North Korea has never given up on the idea of militarily unifying the Korean peninsula and sees nuclear weapons as a key way to do that, to deter U- US conventional forces. And I think Pompeo might even be more hawkish on, on North Korea than that. But that was, of course, before Trump said, yeah, I'll, I'll meet with Kim and we'll you know, make a deal, probably the best deal you know, that's ever been made by any two people ever. So now it's much trickier for me to say what affects Pompeo will have because before I'd say well he would reinforce kind of Trump's worst hawkish instincts and now it's harder for me to see that that would be the case so this is the deep mystery of the but Trump White House
1: th- th- there's also the architecture of Washington so you know when Tillerson came in everyone thought this is the guy you know who's the grown-up well not only that they thought this is the guy who's bound to be very pro-Russian because of his business interests and, you know, other reasons why he would be appropriate for Trump. And in fact, what happened is, you know, Foggy Bottom is quite a long way from the White House. It's got a whole... I mean, I know he's got rid of a lot of people, but it has a whole structure and an ethos and a purpose to itself and a worldwide network, which whoever's Secretary of State, they kind of have to be part of. And so maybe Pompeo will, you know, he will be the spokesman for the State Department to some extent. And it's quite hard to be the enemy at the top of your, your particular tree,
0: well, so one it, or two of the other Trump nominees have managed to achieve that. The no, guy no, at just, Pruitt at the mm, EPA. And Tillerson was to a certain extent yeah. at State
2: yeah. because he was just so isolated he from was isolated. civil yeah. service. But, but, but uh, what, diplomacy you know, how, is different in but, a but, sense. I mean, The network this, is different. We have
1: this, always have this classic thing, don't we, that when someone becomes the Secretary of State, it's quite hard to keep that close link to the White House. I mean, Condi Rice for example, she was very different as Secretary of State from what she had been in in the Security Council. And it's it's almost the geography of Washington means that you are a bit detached, and then you're listening to different people who are probably making very logical points and bringing you certain information, which means when you go into a meeting in the White House, you might have a different way of looking at things. I mean, you're right, there are people who don't behave like that. I'm thinking of John Bolton, Under George W. Bush, who I would have said was not particularly a spokesman for the State Department, the traditional State Department. But I do wonder with Pompeo if if we might see the same thing we saw with Tillerson, which is by virtue of his office, he's not quite the comfortable man that Donald Trump says he's found him to be around.
0: And then Trump will fire him. And
1: then Trump will fire him.
0: Last question. If Trump meets Kim, will you feel a a pull of your old job and and wish you were there covering Mm. it? Isn't that gonna be the greatest summit ever? Well, for a journalist.
1: Yeah, I mean though you know Aaron's
0: already persuaded me it's not gonna happen, but were it to happen. Yeah, it to happen.
1: The, the the sad story of modern journalism and, and technology these days is you, you could find yourself in some, you know, media tent fifty miles away, watching it on TV and not be there. I mean You sometimes do get to. Like, I remember that final press conference between George W. Bush and Putin when he said those immortal words, I looked into his eyes and saw his soul. So, yeah, I was there in Slovenia. So, you know, and and it would be worth being there just for that final press conference of Donald Trump and the North Korean president, uh, leader, but, you know, of course, you always want to be there at the moment. Um, At the moment the world ends. the moment the world ends. Well, that's the thing, isn't it? It's just as likely that this will be a summit that ends with a whimper and not a bang and changes nothing.
0: So. so. we're now back in my office. It's Wednesday morning. Helen's here with me. A few things have happened since the end of last week. In a UK context, something seems to have been building up ahead of steam around Corbyn's response. And we've talked quite a lot on this podcast about the things that do or don't catch when it comes to Corbyn, what does seem to exercise people and whatnot. Also, inevitably, it goes without saying that six days is a long time in Washington. So we were talking last week just after the firing of Tillerson. I think quite a few people have been fired since then and some of Trump's lawyers. I just want to catch up with Helen where she thinks that story is heading. But on the Corbyn question, we don't want to get obsessed with this party because these things come and go and who knows where we'll be in a month's time. But we've talked quite a lot about the ways in which Corbyn's opponents, both inside the Labour Party and of course the Conservatives as well and the media, the the tabloid press, They assume that certain things that would do him damage, particularly in an election campaign, didn't. His past associations, connections with Sinn Féin and the IRA, some of his associations with Hamas and so on. And that all just seems to wash off him. And yet this is the first one that seems to have the potential to change some people's views about him or to reinforce some people's views about him. Do you have a feeling of why that is?
3: I think that there's two things going on. The first of them is within his own party, within the Parliamentary Labour Party, I I mean by that, what he said in the House of Commons does seem to have upset quite a number of people who were willing to keep their mouth shut about their doubts about Corbyn's leadership. So that sense in which he had basically silenced the Parliamentary Party, I think that has ended. How long it will last, as you've just said, is is an entirely different matter. And it
0: is still fairly familiar people, John Woodcock and others. It's not like the shadow cabinet have broken ranks or there's a bit of muttering behind the scenes I think
3: there was some muttering in public from the the shadow cabinet but I think that what there has been is a a media storm around it and a narrative being generated again that there are plenty of people in the parliamentary Labour Party who don't actually want Jeremy Corbyn to be Prime Minister they might swallow it but an opportunity comes to criticise and that they think they're on safe ground to criticise and, and, and they will take it
0: So why is this safe ground for them?
3: I think this one's um, a bit harder. I think there's possibly two different things going on. The first of them is simply that this is present tense. So you can talk about Corbyn's support in the past for the IRA, the things that he said about Hamas, but this is actually happening now, and it involves a chemical weapons attack in a provincial British city, and that has a, a different air to it than either things that happened admittedly in British provincial cities in the past where the IRA are concerned, or what's going on in the Middle East. And I think that Corbyn's problem is, in some senses, is that whilst there is, in an objective sense, room for doubt, and I mean by that even the British government's position or Theresa May's position is that this is highly likely that it's the Russian government, is that Corbyn is simply not the person who can articulate whatever that 5%, 10% or whatever it is, very low probability that Russia isn't directly implicated in, in what's going on here. His past history prohibits that. And so in some sense, he lets loose that old critique of him that he doesn't actually care about what happens to Britain. He cares more about Britain's enemies and I'm using that word in a sense in which the the media might use it against him rather than embracing the idea necessarily that Russia is Britain's enemy. So in some sense it is because Corbyn hasn't earned, if you like, the right to express the doubt I think that's causing him the problem.
0: Is it about judgment? Because one of the things that clearly worried people in the parliamentary party is that he just chose the wrong occasion. There's this, And it's all a bit pompous, I think, actually, there's this kind of sense that somehow these kind of statements in the Commons require the Commons to come together. And he was playing party politics, trying to make a point about Russian oligarchs and Russian money into the Conservative Party. And he clearly misjudged it, but it gets dressed up as this kind of, can you trust a guy who misjudges a national security issue if he were to be prime minister and a national security issue arose? So, is that part of what's going on inside the parliamentary party?
3: Yes, and I but I think it goes back to this Underlying reality that most of the parliamentary Labour Party are just poles apart from Jeremy Corbyn on matters of foreign policy.
0: And it is foreign policy, that's the, the point. Because on domestic policy, actually, it turns out there isn't a huge difference. As I
3: say, I mean, most of them very easily reconcile themselves to Corbyn's domestic positions during and, and the election the, itself. And the,
0: the successful manifesto had very little to say about foreign Absolutely.
3: policy. Absolutely. Whereas there was the Trident issue before, but he backed off on the Trident issue. This looks like old style, authentic Jeremy Corbyn. Helped along his way by Seamus Mill,
0: and that's one of the other oddities about this. We talked about it with Bridget Kendall, as you'll have just heard. Seamus Mill became part of the story, and he's again been quite successful at not. I mean, it's it's true of all politicians and their special advisers that when the special adviser suddenly comes out from behind the parapet and becomes the focus of news, you know there's a problem. And Seamus Mill, I think, has been very successful at being invisible. And I was slightly taken aback by his willingness to front up on this story because he's also the last person almost one of the few things people know about him is that he shared a platform with Putin
3: but I think in in Seamus Mill's case and I think this is partly true in Corbyn's case this in some sense is stories about who they are Russia and the Wests as they see it failure to engage with russia in the post cold war world and they would actually say in the cold war world i think as well when it was the the soviet union is something that they have pretty strong feelings about i mean i think that it's you know it's not unreasonable to say i think as we've said before that jeremy corbyn simply does care about these foreign policy questions more than he cares about domestic politics a lot more than he cares about domestic politics so in some sense i think that he finds it harder to compromise i mean with the caveat noted about trident and that he simply, in some sense, didn't have it in him to go to the House of Commons and behave any differently than he did. So that reminds the majority of the parliamentary Labour Party just exactly why they dislike him, in fact, really despise him in some sense, and any chance that he got of articulating what he wanted to say. And you could say, well, what's the difference between his position and what Macron said in the the middle of last week before the statement of the, the four leaders of Merkel... May, Trump and Macron about Russian culpability. It is that people don't actually think that Macron might care more about Russia than he does about France, but enough people do think that that might be the case where Corbyn's concerned. I'm not saying that that they're correct to say that necessarily, but that is the suspicion, whatever you want to call it, view out there.
0: And it is one of the ironies of the politics of authenticity, which is the age that we're living in, that this is in some sense the authentic Corbyn moment, but there are limits to how far authenticity will carry you if it's the wrong subject.
3: And I think it goes back to this question, is it in any sense good politics for Jeremy Corbyn to be betting on the, let's say, 5% chance that he's correct? (laughs) It's pretty difficult to, to see that a serious politician bets on such a low probability of being right.
0: The other thing to say, I haven't seen recent polling, but certainly polling from about six months ago, the only person with the British public, who had a lower favorability rating than Donald Trump was Vladimir Putin. And it is also the case that in the eyes of most British voters, Putin is just a kind of cartoon villain. And we shouldn't forget that. Trump, we'll do the kind of three minute version here. And I, and I ask because I have lost track of what's going on. Um, the Russia story has implications for Trump's presidency, for the Mueller investigation. Everything is connected with everything at the moment, particularly when it comes to Putin. Where are we now in the middle of this week as opposed to last week with Trump, Mueller, Russia? And this is not, we're not even going to get onto Cambridge Analytica. That is for a separate program. We are going to do that. We're going to do the internet again quite soon. What's going on in Washington?
3: That is a very hard question um, to answer. It seemed to me that by the end of, of last week, there were two counter stories if you like that are related to each other going on simultaneously. One is to Trump's advantage and one very much is to Trump's disadvantage so there's the the Mueller investigation into the notion that um, the Trump campaign colluded with Russia in order to win the election and it seemed by the end of, in fact it was clear by the end of last week that that Mueller was extending or widening out the investigation and asking for some documents relating relation to Trump's businesses in relation to that investigation and that was at least in significant part a new departure for Muller so it looks on the one hand like that the noose if you like is getting tight around
0: the net's um, widening um, the noose is tightening. yeah
3: mixing my metaphors But on the other hand, Trump had a really rather good piece of news last week, and that was the sacking of Andrew McCabe, the Deputy Director of the FBI, who'd been sacked by the Attorney General Jeffrey Sessions on the recommendation of the Office of Professional Responsibility at the Justice Department in light of the investigation by uh, Michael Horowitz, the Inspector General in the, the Justice Department, about what McCabe had done in terms of contacts with the media and the what he'd then told investigators about it, both in relation to the Hillary Clinton email investigation and in relation to the initial FBI investigation into possible collusion of the the Trump campaign. And so, essentially, you had career bureaucrats in the Justice Department sacking somebody who Trump has been extremely critical about. I thought what was striking about that was when Trump took to the tweeting about it, though, he kind of somehow managed to disguise his victory by turning it instantly into an attack on Mueller as if he felt now emboldened to go after Mueller. Rather and, and so actually what had happened which was is that he had not sacked McCabe got lost in the fact that Trump immediately felt the need to go on to attack as if to say I've won this now I can crush Muller at the same time so then he opened himself up to a whole lot of criticism about it, trying to obstruct justice in regard to the the Mueller investigation now that may be another instance of his terrible impulse control. But at the same time, these two particular stories in Washington change quite quickly. So I'm nervous about committing myself to any overinterpretation of that.
0: But if there is a basic tension here between the story that Trump wants people to focus on, which is possible links between the American deep state or just the FBI and the CIA and others, and a desire for Hillary Clinton to have won the election and possible connections between him, his family, his businesses, his campaign, and the Russians. In the end, surely the second of those is going to drown out the first at some point.
3: I'm not sure about that. I, wouldn't, I, I certainly think it's, it's quite possible that it will. But I think that I would still rather keep the, if you like, the competing hypotheses in my head that both of these stories have got legs in them.
0: And so it's possible that Trump might win this contest?
3: I don't rule it out as a possibility.
0: If you'd like to hear our recent episode in which we discuss Corbyn and his past and his present in more detail, who is Jeremy Corbyn? We'll tweet the link to that at tppodcast underscore. Soon we're going to get James Williams back on. He's the guy who won the Nine Dots Prize and he's got a book coming out very soon about the impact of digital technology on all of our lives and our politics. We'll tweet the link to the earlier interview we did with him. We will be talking soon about Cambridge Analytica. We're going to be speaking with James Meek the LRB writer, we hope to have Stephen Toop, the head of this university, on to talk about the politics of higher education. Do join us for all that, and join us again next week. My name is David Runciman, and we've been talking politics. Finally, how long have we done?
1: <clears throat> we've done
0: 36 minutes. Okay, so we'll just do a little... R- Can we briefly do um, North Korea and how that might kind of... Let's briefly do North Korea. (laughs) Is that all right? And Pompeo, because we haven't really... Hold up.